This is from Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? We live in an increasingly diverse country. According to the 2020 census, America is currently 60% white. But in 2045, it is expected that for the first time, whites will be the minority in America. That's less than 23 years away. It's expected that in 2045, America will be 48% white, 25% Hispanic, 14% Asian, and 13% black. Of course, what's expected to happen in America in 2045 has already happened here in Southern California, especially Irvine. 20 years ago, Irvine was 60% white. Today, it's 48%. Asians make up 40%, Hispanics 10%, and blacks make up 2% of the city. After attending my daughter's high school graduation last year and seeing the entire class, I believe in this part of Irvine, North Irvine, Asians make up an even greater percentage. The point being, we live in a very diverse city in an increasingly diverse country. Unfortunately, while our country has diversified much over the years, our churches have not. According to most recent data, only 16% of all congregations in America are multi-ethnic. That means 84% of all churches are dominated by only one ethnicity alone. 84%. This actually matches the attitudes of church members. 71% of evangelicals believe their church is diverse enough. They believe that they don't need to become any more diverse. Ed Stetzer, a church expert, says this, quote, 
Surprisingly, most churchgoers are content with the ethnic status quo in their churches. In a world where our culture is increasingly diverse, it appears most people are happy where they are and with whom they are. They don't want more diversity in their churches, even though their cities are looking more and more different. Why? I think it's human nature. Sociologists and church church growth experts have long argued that churches grow faster in mono-ethnic, mono-racial settings. Church growth experts, sociologists say, if you want your church to grow, then don't pursue diversity. Your church will grow faster in a mono-ethnic, mono-racial context. As the saying goes, birds of a feather flock together, and so do God's sheep. After all, if you could choose what church to worship at, it's natural for you to join a community where you feel most accepted, where you feel most comfortable, where you don't feel judged, where you don't have to explain yourself. It's natural and understandable when you choose your church family that you choose a family where everyone gets you, where everyone looks like you, eats the same food as you, votes similarly like you, and struggle with the same type of parents as you. But here at New Life, we're committed to diversity, so much so that it makes up one of the four pillars of our church's values, those values being gospel-centered, missional, safe refuge, and last but not least, diversity. If you want to learn more about our church's values, know that our next New Life 101 class is coming up in January. At our church, there is not one single ethnicity that makes up a majority here. In fact, I believe there's not one single ethnicity that makes up more than 35% of our church. Last I counted, we have over 15 nationalities represented here at New Life, and this is before our international college students started coming. So I'm sure that number, number has increased. We embrace diversity here. We pursue diversity. Why? Well, is it because we're just giving in to the culture? We're selling out to the culture? After all, we live in a day and age where inclusivity is all the rage. Are we just trying to be politically correct? No. Diversity, you see, is not just a cultural issue. Neither is it simply a political issue. Rather, diversity is a biblical one. Let me explain. From Genesis to Revelation, God makes clear his desire, his plan to reach every nation and create one unified body of believers. He makes it plain in the scriptures that his vision for the kingdom of God is an international kingdom. When he calls Abraham to himself in Genesis 12, 
When he makes the the Abrahamic covenant, he tells Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He tells Abraham, my relationship with you is not just going to have a local impact, but a global one. An entire book of the Old Testament, the book of Jonah, is written as an indictment against Israel's ethnocentrism. Peppered throughout the Old Testament are visions and prophecies of a day where all the nations will stream to the temple of God and worship the one true living God of heaven and earth. I came across Isaiah 19, 23 through 25. It's worth reading for us. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance." This is an extraordinary prophecy, especially when you consider that Egypt, Assyria, and Israel are historic enemies of one another, and yet the prophet Isaiah sees a day where Assyria, Egypt, and Israel will no longer see each other as enemies, but as brothers and sisters, and hear God look down and say, you all are my people. It's a radical vision given the context of his day. And so the entire Old Testament strains forward to see a day where the nations are worshiping together the one true living God. Again, that's not us trying to be dynamic with the service. Uh, There's something going on with the electricity. And this vision for a global kingdom is realized with the arrival and person and work of Jesus Christ. One of the hallmarks of Jesus' ministry is the way he confronts ethnocentric prejudice. For example, in one of his first sermons he gives, he's in his hometown of Nazareth, which is predominantly Jewish. He begins by quoting a passage from Isaiah, identifying himself as the messianic uh, uh, promise, the one foretold by Isaiah. At this, the Nazarenes are excited. Wow, Jesus is the promised Messiah. But then something happens. Jesus then talks about Elijah and how Elijah healed and treated a Phoenician widow a widow who is not Jewish, but a Gentile. And then Jesus goes on to talk about Elisha and how Elisha cured Naaman, a Syrian commander. Again, another non-Jew, but a Gentile. And so quickly, the excitement of the crowd turns from affection to rage. The Nazarenes picked up on Jesus' pro-Gentile message and now are ready to throw him off a cliff. Jesus, throughout his earthly ministry, 
intentionally traveled to diverse Gentile-populated regions. He travels to places like Samaria, Phoenicia, Decapolis, areas known for their multi-ethnic makeup. Scholar Jack Beck writes, Jesus went to these Gentile places to redeem the lost and demonstrate that the kingdom of God is larger than many considered it to be in the Jewish orbit of the first century. Author Maria Garriott writes, By traveling to ethnically diverse regions, Jesus modeled the behavior he wanted his disciples to follow after his resurrection and ascension. Unlike the scribes and Pharisees who taught that only ethnic Israel would be saved, Jesus pursued non-Jewish followers and commended them for their faith. This then leads us to our scripture reading, Acts chapter 2. For those of you relatively new to the Bible, Acts chapter 2 marks a pivotal moment in biblical history. It marks the day of Pentecost. What is Pentecost? Pentecost is the day where Jesus fulfills his promise to the disciples. During his earthly ministry, Jesus would tell his disciples, after I leave you, which is something the disciples dreaded, He comforted them by saying, I will send you the Holy Spirit. I will send you the helper who will come to dwell with you, empower you, and equip you to fulfill my mission. Well, that promise is realized here in Acts chapter 2 as a group of 120 disciples gather together. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon them, fills them, and tongues of fire appear before them. This is the day that many theologians believe marks the birthday of the New Testament church. Here we have the very first Christian worship service. Now, I can talk a lot about the different layers that exist when it comes to Pentecost. I can tell you about how the Pentecost comes from the Old Testament the Feast of Pentecost, which celebrated uh, Israel's harvest and how this harvest now translates differently into the New Testament when it comes to a harvesting of disciples. I can talk about the significance of the tongues of fire and trace all the various instances in the Old Testament where God's fire appears without consuming what it dwells on, whether it be the burning bush or the temple. I can talk about how Pentecost relates to the affirmation of Jesus' ascension and reigning as king over creation in heaven. But we don't have time for all that. What I do want to focus on is the multinational makeup of this first worship service. 120 disciples are gathered, and verse 5 tells us that these were, quote, devout men from every nation under heaven. Of course, Luke, the author, this is hyperbole, right? Not every single nation was represented. Just like this week with the start of the World Cup, you'll hear announcers say the whole world is watching. 
Of course, not the whole world is watching. Not every country is represented. But this is Luke's way of saying there are a lot of nationalities represented in this group of 120. As if that weren't enough to underscore the international flavor of this service, Luke goes on to list the various nations by name in verses 9 through 10. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Arabia, Pamphylia. The list goes on and on. I think you and I tend to miss just how multicultural the first church was because in biblical language, according to Jewish worldview, they divided humanity into two groups. There were Jews and then there were Gentiles. And so it's easy to make the mistake in thinking that Jews refers to one ethnicity and Gentiles represents another ethnicity. But you have to understand Gentiles represents a whole boatload of ethnicities. And here we see exactly what kind and from where. By listing all the nationalities, we see that God too wants us to see just how colorful and diverse was the early church. The multinational makeup of the very first Christian worship service is not some arbitrary fact that is the answer to a trivia question. No, God is making a statement here. God is telling us this vision we have, this promise of a multinational kingdom that we see peppered throughout the Old Testament has finally been realized with Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection. And through the miracle of speaking the tongues of many languages, what God is telling us here is Jesus came for you. Not just for the Jews, but for all the nations. He bled and died and rose from the dead for you. I want all the nations to come to me. As you can see, God's plan to reach the nations start off with a screaming start here in Acts chapter 2. Unfortunately, Though the church got off to a great international start, it started stumbling along the way. In Acts chapter 6, a complaint arises. What's going on? The apostles discover that the, the, the Greek-speaking widows were being neglected with the service of food. The Hebrew-speaking widows, they were served but what were overlooked were the Greek-speaking ones. So already you see a form of racism. You see a form of discrimination going on. Were they intentionally trying to be that way? Probably not. Was it clear to them that God loves all people and that there is no racial hierarchy in the church? Absolutely. Everyone knew that. And yet after living decades thinking one way, only the Jews are God's chosen people, it's hard to start changing that thinking, that mentality, and see a, a, a new normal. Even Peter, 
too would stumble in living out these truths. As we see him during lunchtime sitting only with Jewish Christians and not sitting with the Gentile Christians. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book Blink, talks about the power and influence of the subconscious. There's a test that psychologists use that reveal your subconscious biases. It's called the Implicit Association Test, IAT. And the test is quite simple. You'll have two columns. On one side, let's say you have male. The other column, female. And then in the middle, you'll have a list of names. And so, as a test taker, your job is to put the name with the right column. And so, Jane, female, Mary, female, John, male, so forth and so on. And you're supposed to do it really quick. And this test gauges how you associate certain words with other words. Now, they have a racial bias test that tests your racial biases. On one, uh, in one category, you might have a picture of an African-American. On the other category, a picture of a European-American. And then you have a list of words. Friendly, intelligent, nice, suspicious, dangerous. And as a test taker, you got to go quick, really quick. Can you guess what happened? 80% of test takers tend to associate white Americans with positive attributes more than black Americans. Malcolm Gladwell, he's half black, took this test. He couldn't believe his results. His results show a moderate preference for Anglos over blacks. And he took this test multiple times. The point being that all of us have these subconscious biases that often don't, are not consistent with our stated conscious values. We can say we love all people and believe it, but our subconscious might say something else. We can say that no race is more beautiful than another. And yet, judging by the, white, the, white, the skin whitening lotions, the number of eyelid surgeries that are done, the number of hair straightening products out there, our subconscious bias seems to prefer a certain standard of beauty, doesn't it? When you grow up in a majority white context, you're going to find naturally the normatives, the standards to be set by that majority culture. And so when I grow up and I see all my favorite action heroes and superheroes being white, then naturally I'm going to start associating positively with, uh, with, with, uh, with the Caucasian race. And this is true not just of America, but every country in the world. Whatever is the dominant culture is going to set the standard, the normatives for that culture. What's interesting is the way we view tall people and short people. 
I think all of us here would agree that tall people are not inherently better leaders than short people, right? Are tall people better at leading? No, it's a ridiculous statement to make. And yet, when the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies are looked at, you'll see the overwhelming majority of CEOs being tall. Let me give you some examples. In the U.S., only 14% of all adult males are six feet or taller. 14%. For CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, 58% are six feet or taller. 14% general population, 58% for CEOs. That's a huge disparity. In the general population, only 4% of all adults are 6'2 or higher. Among CEOs, 33%. Now, when the boards are picking their leaders, their CEO to lead them, are they thinking to themselves they need to be tall? No, of course not. But their subconscious bias comes out that way. All of us need to be aware of the biases that we carry. These biases will impact who we greet after church. These biases will impact who we sit with during lunch. And I don't mean to get everyone all weirded out now after lunch today. (laughs) These biases will impact who we embrace, who we ignore, who we vote for as elder or as deacon. Before the cross of Christ... We are all on equal footing. No ethnicity, no gender, no socioeconomic class should be treated better than another. It is our hope that everyone experiences the generous hospitality of Jesus Christ who comes through these doors. Now, I've talked about some of the challenges that stand in our way of pursuing a multi-ethnic, diverse community. But what are some advantages? I don't have time, but I'll just list two. First, the more diverse our church becomes, the more of God we get to see. The more diverse our church becomes, the more of God we get to see. Why? When God created man, he created man in his image. What that means is that in every single individual human, they bear the mark of the divine. They bear the mark of the divine, and they communicate in one way or another who God is. Albeit it's it's not perfect, it's stained by sin, but the image is still there. It's not erased by the fall. It's to the point where one pastor says, whenever you come across a stranger, you might want to say, your highness, because they mark, they bear the mark of the divine. Now let me ask you, can one single individual convey the fullness of who God is? The answer is obviously no. Every individual is shaped differently. 
Some might communicate God's compassion very well. Others might communicate God's justice very well. But we're all different. But not, no one human being, aside from Jesus, can convey the full image of God's glory. As much as that's true for one individual human, I think the same principle applies to one ethnicity or culture. Can one ethnicity or culture fully broadcast the glory of who God is? And the answer is no. When God created trees, he could have just created one type of tree. But he created thousands of different types of trees. Why? Because I think that better communicates his creativity. The more diverse our community, the more we'll be able to see facets of God that we can't see if we were in a monolithic context. There is so much we can learn from the African-American church There's so much we can learn from the Korean church, the Brazilian church, the Ethiopian church. If we have a learning and listening posture towards the different cultural expressions of Christianity exist, I believe our worship will be that much more pure, our love that much more strong. We'll get to experience more of God. It's like food. Can you imagine if you were forced to only eat your own ethnic food? You can't eat any other food for the rest of your life. Only food from your origin of country. Can we survive? Sure. But how starved will we be? How lame will meals be? if we could only eat from our own culture. And yet you and I can agree that one of the joys of living in Orange County, living in in, in Irvine, is that we get to try out so many different ethnic foods and our lives are all the more rich because of that. The same is true with faith. Second, I believe diversity adorns the gospel. It will make the gospel more attractive to the non-believing world. Jesus prays in John chapter 17, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus says that if the church exhibits unity in diversity and diversity in unity, the world will believe you have sent me. It makes the gospel more attractive. I mean, let me ask you, in your life, where do you experience the most diversity? If you lived in New York, probably the subway, right? You experience so much diversity. I experience diversity here when I go to the DMV and I'm waiting. So many ethnicities. We may experience diversity at school or in the workplace. Why? 
Notice how all those places are places where we have no choice about who's around us. But what do you think the world will say when they see a multi-colorful, multi-ethnic group of believers worshiping together voluntarily? Not because they have to, but because they want to. Who willingly go on vacations together. Who willingly open up their homes for one another. That's going to cause them to pause. What's going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. There are forces stronger than culture and race and gender. There are forces stronger than our enjoyment of food or sense of humor or stories or politics. And that is the blood of Jesus. Jesus, his death and resurrection has the power to bring people of different backgrounds together. You might remember the picture. I didn't know the projector was going to be working today or else I would have uh, broadcasted it. But in our New Life 101 class, there's a picture of an oasis in the middle of the desert. And what's surrounding that oasis? Animals, all kinds of animals. Lions, elephants, leopards, you name it, that animal is there. Normally, these animals would never be near each other. You have prey and predators alike. And yet, they're all there. Why? Because they need water. They can't live without water. What we hope to do here at New Life is I try my best, Pastor Lewis tries his best, to faithfully present the living water of Jesus Christ, believing that this water is what every soul cannot live without and needs. And as we sense our common mutual need for Christ, May it bring people from varied backgrounds together who otherwise would never rub elbows with one another. And so at New Life, may our diversity not be something we merely tolerate, but something we actively pursue and pray for. May our church be a place where our God in heaven can look down and see the fullness of his own image. May new life be a place where many cultures and ethnicities are embraced as we kneel before one Lord, profess one faith, receive one baptism, eat at one table, and worship one king. Let's pray. Lord, what a a glorious start the church had as we see a, an international community gathered together in worship of you. And Father, we see that this has been your vision all along. And it is our prayer that at New Life, we might see that realized more and more here at this church May our community reflect the rich diversity of our city. 
We pray, O Lord, that as we worship together and do life together, we will see things about you. We will uh, uh, be able to, to experience the depths of your word more because of our diversity. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bless our efforts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.